No, I do whatever His Holiness would like me to do. <laughs> would, would you like me to start the word? It's up to you. Whatever makes you happy, Doctor. <laughs> I think you should probably begin. <laughs> His Holiness first. <laughs> Forty-one years ago, I was in Kandahar, Afghanistan. I was hitchhiking from London to India. And I was sitting on a dirt floor in a simple tea stall. There were five or six very, very poor people who were squatted down <coughs> drinking tea. And I was one of those poor people. Then something happened that changed my whole perspective of life. A boy walked in, perhaps 16 years old, in desperate poverty. His clothes were soiled, torn rags. He was emaciated, thin. But what quaked my heart and turned my stomach was when I looked at his eyes. He was blind. His eyes were swollen and grossly discolored and disfigured. He carried in his hand a branch from a tree and on one side was nailed to it a tin can that was all rusty. And there was a metal string that was strung across and then nailed to the other side. This boy started playing. Long, 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 long. And as he was playing, he sang. He sang about his love for God. As he was singing, his face illuminated the room. His smile was ecstasy. We were in rapt attention. He sang for almost an hour. And I remember sitting there on that dirt floor questioning my entire existence. I was born and raised in northern Illinois. And I was taught that real happiness in life is to have money, to have beauty, to have health to have power. And that's what I was going to school for. But this boy had nothing. He was impoverished, he was diseased. 
He was blind. But I could tell you, he was the happiest person I had ever seen up to then in my life. And I had to question, what really is happiness? What is the purpose of life? What is everyone really looking for? It shattered my conceptions. But I think the real challenge these days, especially with our, our wonderful students here at Princeton, is how do we convince them that the aim of life is not to be the smartest person in the room? And then after that, how do we convince them the aim of life is not to be the richest person in the room? It's like this film, Social Network. I almost won an Oscar, you know. I read the New York Times, The Triumph of the Human Spirit. I said, did you see the same film I saw? <laughs> Smartest person, richest person, and treating women in a manipulative way. What? depth of spiritual malnutrition are we talking about? The wasteland. What height of moral constipation are we talking about? But even if they knew what's right, it's just stuck and it won't flow. Morally constipated to, to the core. And that's the challenge of all of us, but especially young folk, and especially the place like Princeton. You see, because a place like Princeton is so magnificent, it's wonderful. We just had this, 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 this powerful concert here just two nights ago, and we saw the seniors stand up, and it was quite moving. And in a place like Princeton, where it's not just a privilege, but it becomes so bubble-like that idolatry can seep in before you even know it. And so you leave thinking you are well-equipped for the job, the status, the stature. Then your mama dies. Catastrophe. Spiritual crisis. What kind of armor do you have in place to deal with an everyday occurrence? We were talking earlier today about was, I was at the prison this this morning at, uh, at Wagner, and the brother asked me a question, moved me so deeply. He said, Brother Wes, I'm locked into bad habits, and I can't break loose. And I said, Brother, you're not the only one. All of us wrestling with that in some way. He said, oh, not you, not you. I saw you on television. Look like you got it together. I said, no, no. <laughs> no, no, no. I told you I'm a Christian, that means I'm a sinner. I'm just a redeemed sinner. Just trying to love my crooked neighbor with my crooked heart. The best I'm gonna do. It's true that I've been transformed. Early part of the book, I was a gangster. A Robin Hood though, so I had some tilt toward the poor, but still a gangster. <laughs> After my transformation, I still have gangster proclivities. To this day, wrestling with it all the time, you see. And that's why to be inspired and instructed by your witness, your book, now in the flesh, 
for me is a um, it's, it's a spiritual high because I um, I live in despair. Um, not every day, but I, I wrestle with it. It's like the thirty-second chapter of Genesis for me. Jacob wrestling at night, the angel of death emerges with a new name, wounded though, God wrestler. And a blues man and a jazz person is always a God wrestler. But I got some questions that I don't fully grasp in terms of the depth of the suffering, the kind of suffering you're responding to in, in India, and the kind of suffering you talk about when you come to this country and talk about the hoods and the ghettos and our sisters dealing with patriarchal abuse and the workers not being treated with the dignity that they ought. And you're right about bankers. We need bankers, but we need thoroughly, democratically accountable bankers. <laughs> Some regulation so that the greed cannot run amok to such a degree that billions are lost at the top. And yet 21% of our precious children of all colors live in poverty. That's the kind of moral indignation that you and I, uh, uh, I think, rightly, rightly share. And it's because, I think, our common ground, which is this fundamental commitment to be faithful unto death, to attempt to live a life of love and compassion to the best of our ability.